Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. Hello there, this is Matt Tebby. And uh, you found the Gravity Podcast again. I'm joined, Thanks. as usual, by my compatriots, Christy Penley. Hey, hey. You're looking good today with your pink headphones, as <laughs> usual. My favorite. Yep. We'll say something more about your wardrobe in a moment, but first I want to introduce my friend, Benjamin. Benjamin Skirnke. Hey, it's great to be here. I'm glad to be on the podcast, finally. Uh, you guys let me get on the pot. Oh, wait. No, this is the one that I've been doing for I'm several gonna years. I'm just going to go ahead and mute several guys. Yeah. We'll, we'll edit that out. Okay, we'll Chrissy, before we hit record, you were talking about some sort of uh, wardrobe you challenge. Guys, is this a, I, a is this like a an Instagram influencer held a competition? You, okay. you were wearing dresses or blue jeans? Just one What's dress. Happening? Okay. Just one I'm dress. wearing jeans today, but it go- I wore a dress, a black dress. From a company called Wool and and I wore it for 100 consecutive days. The same dress. You guys didn't even notice, but <laughs> the same dress. I did wash it. People are like, "Did you wash that?" Yeah, of course I wash it. Um, but here's the deal: I pick a word every year. This word, this year's word, is present. And so, what does it mean to be present with people, with God, with myself? And so, in a in the beginning of June, I was like, "Where am I not present? Like, where am I kind of wasting? I don't know being." distracted. Mm -hmm. And I was really honestly like convicted, challenged that I was being distracted by what do I wear? What do people think about what I wear? People don't care, honestly, but like Mm -hmm. that was consuming Mm -hmm. my thoughts. And so there's this company that if you wear their dress for 100 consecutive days, they give you $100, a dollar a day. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll do that. Then I won't like think about what I'm going to wear. And so I started it. My kids were so embarrassed. They're like, mom, please don't wear that dress, you know? (laughs) Because it's three and a half months. That's, That's a, long a long time. time. That's crazy. And uh, you have to take a picture every day. And I just finished. And so today I have jeans on, which I'm like, it's awesome. And uh, like a normal shirt. And yeah, all this to say, there honestly, there are really good lessons that I learned and that I am unpacking oh. about what consumes my thoughts and decisions and all these things. So, That's interesting. Um, That's yeah. super interesting on a number of levels. One, what a did the, you didn't have to buy the dress? They gave you the dress. Well, now they did because they give me a hundred bucks. You know, like it pays for the dress and whatever. But okay, yeah. So you so so the hundred dollars. It's sort of like we'll give you a free dress if you wear yeah. it for yeah. for a hundred days. So yeah. they're getting some advertising cachet out for, of this. Yeah, and you're getting sure. a dress that you might. What's you know, it's the, like, you uh, like the name dress. of that company again? I could use a new dress. <laughs> Yeah. You know, they need to like, I've never do seen men's you wear clothing. A dress. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, this is okay. interesting, Chris. It reminds yeah. me of something we did in grad school where do you remember do you remember uh our friend Kimmy and I uh fasted from looking at mirrors for like a month? Do you remember that? I don't remember that, but it doesn't <laughs> surprise me. Yeah. So it, like we It would wasn't just run- because you'd been recently bitten by vampires? Nope. Okay. <laughs> Had nothing to do with that. All right. It was just an ugly stage and I didn't want to be reminded. <laughs> Uh, I've been in an awkward stage for about 47 years. No, it was uh, something where I just was like, what if I, what if I eliminated mirrors from my life? What would that change? And so I stopped looking at a mirror and I was telling our little dinner group that Chrissy was a part of. And our friend Kimmy was like, Ooh, I'm going to do that. Uh, and so we like didn't look at, and it was similar Christy. Like there was a lot of, my wife wasn't embarrassed, uh, but she, you know, if I had anything on my face or whatever, she would tell, let me know. But, um, but she, but it was, it was a, it, it helped me reckon with, recognize, become aware of how often I was drawn to 
check out my appearance or, you know, do those kinds of things. So yeah, yeah, I've, I, I, and it was interesting. It was like super interesting, spiritually challenging, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. There's lessons I'll be kind of peeling back, I think for, for a bit and chewing on. So it's, it was a good experience. Yeah. So this is interesting. Speaking of kids being uh, embarrassed, Mm. We had a uh, teacher parent teacher conferences this past week, and my wife, um, she she gets a shower first thing in the morning, puts on clothes, but any time after lunch is free reign for her to get into pajamas as <laughs> soon as possible. I do know this about your wife. <laughs> after lunch, nice. Anytime after lunch. Um, And, you know, if she gets into pajamas before lunch, something is wrong. We need to have a sit down. You know, there's something really going on that's not so good. So anyway, last uh, couple weeks, couple nights ago, we were we we left the house to go to parent teacher conferences. And my wife had very specifically changed out of her pajamas to go to the evening meeting with the teachers and our daughter. But halfway to school, she realized she was still wearing her Crocs that she only wears in the house. And my daughter was mortified. Your house crocs <laughs> mortified <laughs> so uh we almost turned around we're late my she was close to tears we had to calm her down Aww. she gave us a cold shoulder but then you know i'm always looking for ways to be a better dad so during the teacher conferences i i kept bringing up my mom my wife's crocs uh <laughs> over <laughs> and over <laughs> Oh, and by great. the end, my 11-year-old was laughing, and we had a great time with it. Oh, that's but that's great. what your black dress story reminded me of, Christy. Yes. That's great. Uh, yes. Anyway, anyway, uh, it's good to be doing this intros again with you. I was gone the last time you did a few intros. I know. And uh, I'm back now. And back? Yeah. We get, a, we get a chat about uh, our interview today mm-hmm. with yeah. uh, Christy Gunter and Tom Ford. We yes. talked to them about their book, Love does not control, which we say a lot. Yeah. I think I feel like I say a lot um, uh, on this podcast and other places at the bus stop. I just say it, <laughs> you know, whenever people people are a little. They've been they've been writing in about it. They're like, does that guy know that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, anywho, uh, this was a great convo, and actually, yeah. it's part of our series about trauma. Yeah. Things we're learning, how to become yeah. more trauma-informed, how to deal with trauma, our own and others, how to be in relationships or communities where yeah. everyone's bringing their own trauma to the table, which our communities call the table, and so literally that's happening. So all of that, uh, this is unto fomenting uh, a yeah. more competent and yeah. compassionate imagination for how to be human together in the complexities of life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, th- I'll just say the... Um, the reason I think that phrase is so arresting, so striking, is that we don't oftentimes, I think some people's definition of love is, is control, Yeesh. right? Like the, the way I love you is by dictating what happens to you, which is what actually ends up traumatizing people, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the part of the definition of trauma is the feeling of powerlessness, that I don't actually have power to like to have say so over mm-hmm. what's happening to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think... It's, this is a great interview because I think it it ties together the experience of trauma, but it not linking just to people's behavior, but to th- the theologies kind of behind the scenes that yes. empower and justify sometimes the, the, the bad behavior. And, and it talks a little bit about the ways that theology itself can be traumatic hmm. if it's, you know, uh, expressed in some of these ways. And so anyway, I, uh, yeah, it was, it was fun to, to meditate on this stuff with, with Thomas and Christy. So, you know, I wasn't on this, uh, this time, but Mm -hmm. just the other day in a cohort, we were talking about the grace and truth matrix. And if our listeners are familiar with gravity stuff, they are familiar with the, the X, Y, two squared grace and truth matrix. And they were basically saying that the call out is kind of control, Mm -hmm. that the hangout is kind of kindness and that the call in is connection. Mm, yep. And I was like, oh, I really like that kind of verbiage. And and in that, then love is not controlled. Like it's yeah. not just called out. It's not just like, let me scream truth at you. But there is a deep connection like that yes. love invites us into. And so, um, yeah, mm. I'm just thinking about that and processing yeah. that the other day. So anyway. I, I like that. 
and maybe it's not, I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm going to try it out out loud. Maybe it's not possible to connect with that, which you are controlling. I think that that's true. Yeah. I think you have to give up mm. control to actually have connection. Yeah. So anyway, something to chew on. I just want Definitely. to talk about really that good. now for like 30 <laughs> minutes. We better get it. We better get out of this intro and get into this podcast. Cause yeah. that, that stirs a lot for me. Yeah. That's really yeah. good. Yeah. Me too. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll do a, a bonus episode about this if we can find some time to record. Yeah. So thanks for offering yeah. that thought. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks right. to Christie's cohort participants for I know, right? commiserating with us yes. in the tools that we use. That's awesome. All right. Upward All right. and onward. <clears throat> Here we go. Let's get into it. Dr. Christy Gunter and Thomas J. Ord join us today on the Gravity Podcast. Christy is the Director of Client Services at an agency that serves family of domestic and family violence in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. She's the author of Survivor Care, What Religious Professionals Need to Know About Healing Trauma, which we will be talking with her about in several weeks, so make sure you come back for that. And she has her doctorate in Global Health and Wellness and MDiv and a Master's of Social Work with over 500 additional hours of specialized training in violence, assault, trauma-informed care, and other related topics. Thomas is a theologian, philosopher, and a scholar of multidisciplinary studies. He's uh, the best-selling and award-winning author, having written or edited more than 25 books. Academic Influence ranks him as the most influential theologians, uh, among the most, in the 21st century. And he directs a doctoral program at Northwind Theological Seminary and directs the Center for Open and Relational Theology. He's known for his research and writing on love, Open and Relational Theology, Science and Religion, Evil and Power, and the Implications of Freedom and Relationships for Transformation. Uh, Tom and Christy, welcome to the podcast. Good to be hanging out with you guys. Yeah, and uh, we're talking today about a book that they co-edited with some other people, uh, and the title is Love Does Not Control. Therapists, psychologists, and counselors explore uncontrolling loved. Tom, I think uh, I first encountered this phrase, uncontrolling love, with you, um, and my computer doesn't like the word uncontrolling. I get a, <laughs> a little red squiggly line every time I type it underneath. Uh, my computer's telling me this isn't a word, but Ben and I were just at a, a conference where we led some workshops, and we we borrowed this phrase, use this phrase from you. Mm, um, and, uh, it's not the first time we have, and it seems to do a lot of really good imaginative work. So could you talk a bit about how this word to describe love became important to you and what role does uncontrolling uh, love play in your life and work? Yeah, this uncontrolling love of God uh, theme emerged in my own theological work and reflection. I was trying to come up with some kind of language that said that Love comes first in God, that God always loves everyone and everything, and you can just count on that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that idea has been embraced by, I mean, quite a few people. It's not that radical, but folks who have embraced it have continued to think that God has the kind of omnipotent power that God could and sometimes does control creatures or creation from time to time. And I was against that idea, and I'm still against that idea. And I realized maybe I should talk about God's love as inherently uncontrolling to overcome the problems that arise with thinking that God has controlling power. Yeah. Tom, I wonder, Christy, I want to ask you about this too, how this functions in your um, in your in your practice. But first time, I, I wonder if you've encountered this argument. I remember when I read that, I thought, Oh yeah, First Corinthians thirteen says love does not insist on its own way. You know, love mm-hmm. is not seeking, self-seeking. I guess you could. Um, but then I've I've seen this move that exegetes and theologians make to say that what First Corinthians thirteen is describing isn't God's love; it's it's human love. Have you encountered that argument, and how do you respond to that? You know, I don't think I have specifically related to uh, Corinthians thirteen. Actually, what I oftentimes have people say to me is, well, isn't human love sometimes controlling? 
And they'll give an example like, let's say a child is about ready to step out into traffic and be hit by a car. And you reach out and grab the kid and pull the kid back and you thwart, at least to a certain degree, the kid's free will. Well, isn't that a loving thing? And of course, I think it is. Um, And so I've talked about how God doesn't have a divine hand because God's a universal spirit. So I think for me, it's been kind of the opposite. It's people have said, well, I sometimes need to control others to do, you know, to help them. Why doesn't God sometimes control us to help us? Mm. Um, You know, maybe last thing on this time, I'm, I'm thinking about when the psalmist has God say, don't be like the horse or mule that must be controlled. Mm. Uh, led around by the bit and bridle, but rather uh, grow in wisdom so that you're able to be free and make choices without a bit and bridle. And I think Mm. that's what, um, it's interesting because you could take little snapshots from maybe the scriptures and say, see here, here's God superimposing his will or domineering. Uh, But Mm. but I I think what I've learned from you and others is that God is willing to trust his love over uh, meticulous control of outcomes as the best way to ensure human flourishing and freedom. Mm, I like that. Uh, let me start this conversation with my first big controversial claim. Here goes. Oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> I can find no passage in the entire Bible that explicitly says God controlled creation or creatures such that the creatures of creation had no impact, had no contribution, had no freedom or agency. What has happened is people have come to the Bible with this view of God as ability to control, and then they've read stories in Scripture and said, well, God did that. It must have been through control. Um, But I don't think the Bible ever explicitly says God controls. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so this is speaking about um, our relationship with God. Christy, I wonder if we can pivot towards the uh, the the dynamic between two people. And in your work as a therapist and a counselor, how does how uncontrolling uh, become important to you and, and why? So I'm speaking from more of being a director and working with clients in the sense of domestic violence and sexual assault. However... This comes into play in really important ways. For example, uh, most of the, all of the people who come to us have come because of an intimate partner or someone in their family has uh, controlled them in some way. Controlled finances, relationally, uh, emotionally, name it. They've been controlled and they haven't had the agency and autonomy over their own life. And what does that do when we're controlled and we don't have agency and autonomy over our own lives? It Mm. leads to trauma. And so trauma itself is the response to not being able to act. So you can't run, you can't fight, you can't fawn, you can't do anything. You're just Hmm. stuck in that moment. And that's Mm. that trauma moment. And Mm. so you need to be able to control whether you react, engage socially, uh, what you do next, or it leads to trauma. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. Christy, you, you, your, um, your article here in this book, uh, you lay out working, uh, you lay out sort of what's, what's called an open and relational theology and you kind of break it down into, and this is in the intro and in your article, Christy, into three, uh, uh, maybe axioms, right? God is relational. Uh, number two, the future is open and three love is central. And I think most people who are listening vibe with one and three. We talk about that a lot, but it's two, I think, that many of our listeners either haven't heard before or may have some tension with. Can you expound on what it means to be open and relational and what it means for the future to be open? Sure. So uh, speaking theologically is one thing, and then I apply it to my own life based on what I understand theologically. So theologically, I understand it as uh, God doesn't control the future of who, what we're doing, right? We're, we're allowed agency and autonomy over our own choices. And then I provide that same sort of uncontrolling options, no control over the future. You are as much of an expert in your life as 
I am in mine and I give options, right? So practically that looks like somebody comes into my office that I'm sitting in now. Do you want to sit in that chair or that chair? Do you want me to sit behind the desk or in front of the desk? right? All sorts of little choices. It's not controlled. It's not planned before they get here. I might have some tools in my tool belt um, that I know how to ask certain questions or I know how to help someone along in the process, but it's not planned. It's not controlled. And they have agency and autonomy over the whole process. It's their life and they're the experts in their life. Yeah. And what I hear you saying too, is that for those Who've, uh, whose bodies have incurred trauma or stored trauma from a lack of freedom, a lack of choice, being domineered, that even even giving people agency in, the, in that environment can be healing, yeah? So the living as though the future is open for both of you creates the space needed for a shattered or battered will to learn to stand. Is that what you're saying? That's beautiful. I love that. Because the more we learn to practice on our own, right, this agency and autonomy, especially when it's chronic trauma, like intimate partner violence or family violence, when it's chronic and repeating, we've got these cycles in our brains that we're automatically responding. And so this helps break that cycle and helps build that confidence, right? You got it. Sometimes it's really hard to choose a chair if you haven't been able to control anything in your whole life, right? So we start out tiny and then we start to build up from there. Mm. And now, a word from a sponsor. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, let's get back into our conversation. Well, Tom, I wonder if you could respond to this as well, these basic tenets of open and relational theology. And here's here's my hunch. Tell me if I'm right. Tell me if I'm wrong. Okay. If, I'm, if I'm wrong, uh, help me out. My hunch is, is that I think most people would say that um, God is relational, and most people would say that love is central, um, but they don't understand how number two impacts those two statements. And if you yeah. don't have number two, it changes those two statements. Mm, yeah. Um, can you speak to that a bit, if, that's, yeah. if, I'm, if my hunch is correct? Well, let me first talk about one and three on the way to number two. <laughs> so number one says God is relational. And you're right. I mean, nine out of 10 people I know who believe in God will say, of course, God is relational. I pray to God and at least sometimes it seems like God responds or God is happy when I do well and love others, but God is displeased and angry when I hurt myself or hurt others. That's a, a response in relationship. And then I tell them that the majority of Christian theologians in history have not thought God is relational. They've not thought God reacts, responds, or can be influenced by us. And then that third one, that love is central, just about every Christian I know thinks God is loving. But a whole bunch of those people who think God is loving think God sends people to hell for eternity, doesn't think God has any emotions or response to anything we do, allows or causes evil. So they'll say God is loving, but it just doesn't fit these other beliefs they have. And open relational theology tries to provide a consistent and a coherent theology that starts with love. Yeah. But the second... Oh, well, can I jump can I on the second? Yeah, just for, for a second. There's there's this philosophy that says um, if God does it, it's loving, yeah. right? Or if yeah. God does it, it's good. Is that voluntarism, nominalism? What, what is yeah, that? voluntarism. Yep, yep. Voluntarism. Yep. Um, could you speak a bit to how that gets? Because uh, this is to your point about um, we have to almost gaslight our consciences to call certain things good or loving when we would never do them with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Let me illustrate this by uh, pointing to some biblical passages that I don't believe are true. How was that first controversial <laughs> statement number two? <laughs> um, 
yeah, there's some biblical passages like the one in the Psalms that thinks that God wants them to bash the baby's heads of their enemies against a rock. Well, when I was a younger person and I thought God was loving and I thought the Bible had to say everything true, and then I thought, well, maybe in some mysterious way, taking babies by the feet and bashing their heads against the rocks, well, that must be loving from the divine perspective. But that just goes against every moral intuition that you and I have. And the voluntarist will say, yep, whatever God decides to do is itself loving because God just up and arbitrarily chooses what's loving and what's not. I think differently. I think God must act in ways that promote well-being. It's part of the essentialist tradition that says that God's nature is love that promotes well-being for others, and God must act that way because it's who God is. And therefore, when I read passages of Scripture like bashing babies' heads, I say, the writers of Scripture got that part wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've heard other people just explain, too, it's uh, it's part of how you pour out your wrath against people. You pour out your wrath against people in God's presence, and He orders and shapes it. I think there's other ways of handling that, too, that— yeah, not necessarily a, um, a putting that onto God, but maybe putting that on the human writer. Right, uh, but, that's but, what I would do. Yeah, but just to your point, Tom, I think that even Jesus uses an argument of if you know how to, mm. how much greater does God do the same? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So Jesus takes human love and doesn't say, "Well, God's love is inconceivable compared to that." He takes human love and says. God's love is transcendently more than that same kind of thing. And so mm-hmm. the thing that got me, the thing where I realized I was a voluntarist and uh, I, I was using a logic that Jesus rejects explicitly. Um, and, then I, and then I got saved. That was one <laughs> Well, yeah. can I go back then to the open factor in those three things that Christy mentioned? So I've talked about relational and said, yep, I think God is relational, but lots of theologians have said no. I've talked about love and said, almost everybody thinks God is loving, but the theology they have around that view oftentimes just sucks. (laughs) And the third one, this idea that the future is open, that is very uncommon. Christy and I are among a minority of people who think that God moves through time moment by moment such that the past is really past for God, and the future is a realm of possibilities that even God can't know with absolute certainty which of those possibilities will become actualized or will become uh, real when the time comes. And so this idea of God in time rather than outside of time, that's what open theism is about. Yeah. I wonder... um if we could um, draw the connection between Christy, maybe the work that you do and this, and this theology, Um, because I think I I read an article, I can't remember who it was by, (laughs) but they said we have to pay attention to the psychological effects of theology. Like theology has moral and psychological effects that are worth paying attention to. We can't just ignore those things as if I don't, it just doesn't matter. It's like, I think it actually does matter. Um, And so I think that, part of what we're beginning to draw the connections between here are the fact that maybe the view of God that people have can be a hindrance and a barrier to them overcoming that trauma. Um, and that this view, this, this view of God as love and love being uncontrolling can maybe help people into the healing of trauma. Is that kind of, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how that works, Christy, or what you've seen sure. there. I have also seen uh, the damage it does to have someone come out to their pastor or uh, another faith leader of some sort and receive that kind of response as if um, they weren't being believed almost, or um, the experience wasn't valid that, um, or I've seen it this way also, that um, when good things happen, when they finally get out, when they find strength, all the praise is given to God, this divine being, 
and the person who fought to, you know, make it off the floor and fought for their kids and et cetera is kind of pushed to the side. This is all God. God's so in control here that you've done nothing in your experiences um, worthless, right? And so part of what I've seen um, my therapy team do, even if it's not specifically one religion, because we're a nonprofit, um, is giving people back that ability that I am strong. I've made um I've made these choices. Here's what I couldn't control because I was being controlled. Here's what I can control and celebrating that. And that's a little bit of what we see in narrative therapy, right? I like to partner narrative therapy with this because narrative therapy takes the the story as it is and really grieves it and then looks at it from another angle and says, where did we see your strength? Where do we see your power, your agency? And we celebrate that. And then we work those two stories and make a new story together. Hmm. And uh, I think that partners really well with how this works in real life. Christy, that yeah. dovetails into my next question because I, I there, there's these themes that keep popping up in this book. Um, by the way, the book is, um, what, 40 or 50 articles written by lots of different authors. Um, but the theme that keeps coming up is, uh, there's one theme is about empowering people versus overpowering or disempowering or, or domineering them. But when it comes to pastors and therapists, even scholars, theologians, professors, um, a lot of people come to us looking for, they want us to control them. They, they like, like treat me like a car, you know, and fix me, you know, that kind of thing or answers, that kind of thing. So I was going to ask, and maybe this is the metaphor you used was kind of like a a mentor or like a midwife or like some kind of um, champion that comes along. I think Because I think for many of us, our imagination is locked into either I tell people what to do and they do it or I'm hands off, right? But what does it look like to embody an uncontrolling, empowering presence that isn't passive? Could you say more about that, Christy? Sure. Uh, one of the authors actually wrote an article about God as a midwife, and uh, it was really powerful. Uh, but I love that metaphor, this bringing forth new life from pain and agony, um, walks alongside, encourages, supports. That's a, that midwife analogy is really uh, a fantastic one. And I'm not sure people come expecting us to fix everything because they, they might say they do, but everybody wants control over their own lives too, yeah, right? Like yeah, yeah, we want to be yeah. able to um, choose a little bit, maybe what we eat for lunch or <laughs> whatever. And so even those who are like, come fix this for me, um, I run several programs. One of them is the housing program, right? It could be, um, here's rent for a year, the end, right? <laughs> it's a, but we don't work that way. We're like, okay, what are our goals for helping create sustainability this next year? What are your goals? And when we encounter those barriers to all the things that are a part of that programming, um, what are we going to do together? To, to look at all the options and you choose what's best, right? Mm -hmm. That's part of our my roles and uh, my case manager's roles is we don't know what's best for the client. <laughs> We're there to provide all the options. Let them know what is included in all the options and then empower them to make the best choice for their life. Yeah, yeah I, I wonder too... Um, how this changes, you know? So I have a 15 and 11-year-old. And I think one of the challenges of parenting is, Tom, you mentioned earlier, like grabbing the three-year-old out of the street from a moving car. And I think I think for, for me, I find instincts in my body in parenting moments where I'm just grabbing a three-year-old out of the street from a moving car. But really, we're talking about a pair of $90 soccer shoes that you're choosing whether or not to buy. You know what I mean? I'm treating this moment as though I have to grab you and move you versus like what you're talking about, Christy, um, em empower you. Um, and I think it's based upon this desire we have for ourselves and others to grow and change. 
Like we, we want to see growth. We want to see maturity. Um, could you, Tom, could you talk a bit about what you've learned about that? Like what do humans need uh, in order to grow and change? We'll go with Tom first and then Christy, I'd love to hear what you've learned as well. Well, as you were talking, uh, a real life story ran through my head that goes back uh, 25 years. I was in Southern California and my wife and I had three daughters and our middle daughter, Alexa, was going through the terrible two stage. <laughs> and my wife went to work earlier than I did. And if she didn't kiss this two-year-old daughter goodbye, because she thought, you know, my wife thought she was asleep, and left the house, the two-year-old would just throw an incredible tantrum of hitting and kicking and screaming. And we tried all kinds of things to discipline our child. One morning, my wife leaves the house, and her shutting the door wakes up our two-year-old daughter. She jumps out of her little bed, goes running down the hallway toward the front door, screaming, kicking, hitting the door, throwing her tantrum. And I jumped up and I'm not saying that I'm, I'm not trying to say that what I did is good parenting, but I, this is part of the story. <laughs> I went to the front door. I picked my little two-year-old daughter up. I shook my finger at her. I said, you will not throw another temper tantrum. And I walked her back to her bed and I physically took my arms and wrapped her two arms so she couldn't hit me. And then because she was still kicking, I put my leg over her legs so that she wouldn't kick me. And then because she was screaming like crazy, I put my hand over her mouth. That's the one I regret the most. But in that moment, that very moment, I said to myself, I can't control a two-year-old. This must be what it's like when God can't control us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I begin to think that what I really want from my two-year-old is not me to always be around and have my body there so the two-year-old doesn't go out of control. What I really want is to empower my two-year-old to begin to self-regulate, to be able to handle those emotions that are coming in her so that she doesn't throw a temper tantrum. And that takes what Christy's talking about, working with the agency of the other and trying to help them to use their agency in appropriate ways. Yeah. Yeah. Christy, can you say more about that then? How, how do humans grow and change? And, and what is this dynamic Tom's sharing? How does that play a role in that? So I was thinking about when I parent my own children, right? Uh, I, I want them to make the mistakes now while they're young and while the risk is low, right? And so sometimes I have to let that happen. And I do the same with clients. Um, we've got this little protection bubble here right now. It's safe to make some mistakes. It's safe to uh, not always make the best choices. And that's okay. That's part of learning and growing and changing and um changing the brain and how the brain is responding to situations. It takes time. And so they might be in our shelter, for example, and uh, they don't always, this might surprise you, but traumatized women living in a house together don't always make the best choices. <laughs> um, and I encourage my staff to be patient with that. That's normal. That's what's supposed to happen, right? Sometimes a new staff member will say something like, she cussed at me and whatever, we got to kick her out. And I'm there saying, no, that's that we expect that, right? She was just abused so badly. She's been <laughs> sent to a shelter. We expect a little bit of that response. We need to allow space for those kind of quote unquote inappropriate responses mm. uh, in a safe bubble. Mm. Oh, Tom, uh, go ahead and unmute Tom. There we go. I didn't realize I'd muted. Uh, Christie says something that sparked an, I, a thought in my mind. I'll bet Christie agrees with this. I think lots of us, me included in fact sometimes, we desperately want someone else to fix our problems. Yes. yes. And this shows up in politics all the time. 
You get a politician who stands up and says, I'm going to fix this country. I'm going to do that. I'm going to build a wall, whatever it is. And a lot of people want to say, ah, let that person fix all my problems rather than thinking, what am I going to do to participate in the work that needs to be done to overcome the problems? Mm -hmm. And we see that when it comes to God. We want a God who can fix our problems so we don't have to do anything. We see it when it comes to therapists. We want that therapist to fix all the things that is happening to me. But I think one part of open and relational theology is says that you and I have agency to cooperate or not with the loving lure of the divine moment by moment. Yeah. So, so both of you are speaking to the power of a relational encounter. And I, I wonder that, that, that phrase is used frequently in this book and it's provocative to me, but could you pull it apart, tease it apart, maybe from a theological standpoint and maybe more of a clinical uh, client standpoint, what, what are we talking about? when we say relational encounter, and what is it about that that foments and fosters healing? Well, I think relationships are really the center of healing. And I, I talk about this a little bit in my own book, you know, that uh, we experience extreme agony at the hands of another person. And we experience healing in much the same way, that there's something about connection. Sometimes when we start with kids and healing, we start with animals, right? We we connect with animals that are safe, or we, um, I, I watched my therapist, just let one of my children's therapists last week, get on the floor with a child who didn't feel safe. And that's amazing, right? Um, there's something about that connection that um, human relationship or love, as we call it, uncontrolling love, that creates those healing moments. And that's what healing is, right? Thriving in spite of what happened. It's not getting over it. It's not plowing through it. It's thriving in spite of these horrible things that have happened. We'll be right back. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, when I think about relationality, I go back to some of the themes that we have been talking about here. And one of them is agency or power. And um, to answer this from a more theological perspective, uh, most people I know who believe in God believe one of two ideas about God's power. They either think God is in control in the sense that God has all the power and does everything that ever occurs. Therefore, we have no agency or freedom. And that is not a relational view because it means that one part of the, quote, relationship has no agency whatsoever. Most people I know don't think that God controls everything, however. Most people I know thinks that God is in a kind of giving and receiving relationship with us as agents most of the time, but occasionally God decides to control some situation or some person for some great purpose, either to fulfill some goal in God's divine plan or to stop some bad thing. Now, if this is the case that God sometimes controls, but usually doesn't, every victim Every survivor has to believe that God didn't think it was important enough to stop the crap that happened to them, that somehow this must be a part of God's plan or God's kind of doesn't really care that much about them. And this kind of relationality that Christy and I are talking about says that we always have agency. And I'll go so far as to even say God can't ever control you, me, or any creature or any part of creation at any time. Another way to put it is we're proposing a radical relational theology. Yeah. You, you know what I'm, 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 I'm thinking about, Tom, as you share that, is, is some of the work done with attachment therapy about how we grow and develop as humans 
And one of the things that I've learned is that we don't even have to ascribe to God the harm that's done to us, like God did this or God caused this, um, to to have some sort of attachment um, pathology, right? It could just be an insecure or anxious attachment. Sometimes he's there, sometimes he's not. I can't really trust him. Yeah, is that what you're describing? Yeah, yeah. You know, in attachment theory, the, the aim is a, quote, secure attachment. And you can have attachments with this significant caregiver, usually a parent, in which the caregiver is too controlling, too domineering, a helicopter parent. And in those cases, the child doesn't have the kind of agency they need to have a, to live a flourishing life. But there's another view of uh, the other side of attachment is parents who don't have enough influence. So theologically, this is the God of deism who sits up on popcorn and looks down at us and says, you know, you're on your own down there. Good luck. Um, I think a God of uncontrolling love has the perfect amount of influence, always influencing us for the good in every moment, but never manipulating, never the helicopter God, never a God who controls. Mm. Tom, that's great. I, I am still considering the way that I may have butchered attachment theory. So Christy, I want to bring you in here to see if, if you need to, uh, if there's anything you need to edit about how I shared that. <laughs> no, you're all right. Um, I just was thinking to myself, um, similar to what Tom was saying, but um, in intimate partner relationships and family relationships where uh, somebody might come to us after being trafficked even, and the, um, the attachment to me, I'm thinking in terms of um, they almost replace their own understanding of reality with someone else's reality in order yes. to survive. Yes. And when they come to us, we have to work on helping them trust their own understanding of reality because they're not in that or maybe they are, but maybe they're working out Um and so I think of attachment in those ways as well, um, beyond attachment theory, right? Um, yes. And, and how does that relate theologically? Yeah. I mean, I, <clears throat> I think that uh, what, I, what I'm reminded of, Christy, when you share that is the, the way that um, we've, we, I mean, Ben and I and others, our listeners have learned about narcissists and narcissistic personality disorder and how one of the things that I've experienced around narcissists is what's commonly called a reality distortion field where, where they're constantly lying to you about how you're feeling, about, what you're, about what's happening to you, right? So that you end up just adopting their story or their version of reality, right? Um, I, th I think of, uh, I think of maybe, maybe a caricatured example of this would be sort of the verbally and um, physically abusive husband who keeps talking about how being a strong man is the only way to protect women, right? Meanwhile, they're, they're damaging all the women around them, but telling them it's for their own good. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do, I do think that there's what I hear you saying is that there's this, uh, this agency that people need to recover in order uh, through a relationship, through somebody honoring and respecting their humanness, their autonomy in a way, so they can learn to trust themselves again. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love the way you phrased it. <laughs> Man, I, yeah, I'm, I'm talking myself into uh, wanting to uh, uh, get some of this kind of therapy. Um, <laughs> um, maybe to close, because we're talking um, on this series about trauma, I think we've covered how we all bring traumas into religious spaces or churches, right? Any kind of community or gathering of people. And then you layer on most Christian churches speak in very um, intimate terms. There's a lot of spaces where we can be vulnerable, where there's a lot of power invested in certain people. So you have sort of this uh, interesting arena where people bring trauma in and there's all kinds of uh, particularities that can trigger or create new trauma. 
And something your book talks about, and I, I wonder if one of you can speak to this or both, you, you talk about ways of human relating where we can actually leverage others' trauma or, or use it. And I, I wonder, that was something that I hadn't really considered, but I'm wondering if you could speak at all to what does that look like and how does that work? I'm not sure what chapter you're talking about or where you're talking about it in the book. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, when I think about leveraging trauma, uh, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by that. But I think the very um, the very reality of trauma speaks to the importance of time as a category. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, oftentimes, people think of events in our lives that are horrific, that cause us great suffering or harm. And then they think, well, I'm going to go to a therapist or a counselor. They're going to fix that thing with a snap of a finger. Or I'm going to pray and God is going to heal me in a snap of a finger. And then when they continue to experience these traumatic effects long after the horrific incident, they start to wonder, okay, you know, am, is there something wrong with me? Am I not curable? Does God not want to heal me? Why do I continue to have trauma? Mm. I've experienced this in my own life in relation to uh, being mistreated by university people. And mm. uh, thinking that I had worked through all the negative feelings, and then I'll be hiking in the Idaho wilderness, and all of a sudden, these thoughts will come on, and these traumatic emotions take over, and I'm like, oh, I was supposed to be out here in the wilderness to get away from all of this, and it's followed me here. <laughs> and that's a way of saying that in time, these traumatic and uh, horrific events continue to exert influence. And we have to decide what we're going to do to try to cope with that influence. Now, yes. in some cases, that influence declines, but in other cases, it stays there. And we have to choose, okay, what are we going to do? Maybe this is what you mean by leverage. What are we going to do in light of the, the feelings and the events that harm us even today, long after what happened in the past? I, I would add on to that to say that one of the marks of healing is when we begin to find the ways that the pain is transformed into something helpful for someone else, right? Part of the reason that I'm in this field and working this is because I've lived it and I understand it in a different way. I understand it viscerally in my own body. And to there's something healing about uh, participating in giving back and um, finding redemption in the horrible things that happen to you. And so maybe the leverage would be um, maybe God didn't give you that pain on purpose, but it happened. And in spite of it, you've learned to thrive. You've mm -hmm. You've thrived in spite of this horrible thing, and then you've used it for something good. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. think that's yeah. so important. Can I jump in real quick, Matt? Yeah, Sorry. go for it, Tom. I mean, what Christy said I think is so important. Um, and what I have found amongst Christians is the following phenomenon. A bad things ha thing happens. Then later, the Christian sees something good that comes from it. Maybe the good is they've had that bad experience and now they can empathize with others who've had the bad experience. Or maybe because of that bad experience, some other opportunity for something good came along. You know, like maybe the uh, a woman was involved in a, a relationship in which she was physically abused. She got out of it and then she married a guy who's really, really great. And she thinks, oh man, I'm so much better off now. I went through that bad thing. And then what Christians will do is they'll say, Oh, that bad thing in the past, that must be a part of God's plan. That must be what God wanted for me all along so that now I can help others who go through similar things or now I can find the man who's really good to me rather than the rotten one I once had. 
And Chris and I both want to reject the idea that this is somehow a part of a blueprint that God has predestined from all eternity. But we want to say God continues to work with every single one of us, even in the rottenness of situations, to try to squeeze something good from the bad that God didn't want in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That wasn't even what I was considering as I asked the question. And sorry for throwing a question that wasn't clear. <clears throat> I w- as as I reflected on why it was unclear, I was thinking about this conversation I had with a local pastor here in my town who was talking about how um, even the single mom with three kids who keeps getting abandoned and used by men needs to hear that she's a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner. <laughs> And I was thinking in my head, I was thinking at the time, that's not right. But now as we're having this conversation, I can see that like, she doesn't need to hear that. Like that's all she, that's all, that's internalized in her body. Why else was she let, why else would she be in environments where she gets used if she didn't think she had any value? And so I think, I think what I was trying to ask was, and now it's becoming clear to me that like some people prey upon trauma right? Maybe it's a fawn response that gets uh, misinterpreted as, oh, you're such an obedient person, when really they're just reacting out of their midbrain, and they're just fawning all over somebody who's abusing power. And they're seen as like a really good person, but they're trapped in this trauma response to a threat. You're actually a threat to them, and they're exhibiting trauma, and you're using that and calling it good. I think that's what I was trying to ask about. Um, And I I think that... uh, you answered uh, in ways that actually went beyond that. So thank you. <laughs> this has been so wonderful. There's so many great little articles in this book that get at uh, chaplaincy and counseling and uh, theological reflections from people who help others. Um, maybe as we wrap up, um, where can people uh, read more and learn more about you? Tom, I, I follow you on the socials, and so I don't know if you want to plug those, but um, I have to tell you, um, Tom takes the best pictures on his hikes. <clears throat> if you're into not not cat pictures, if you go go elsewhere for cat pictures, but actually I have and, a mountain lion picture there, so there is a, a cat picture on my timeline. <laughs> Where can people find you, Tom? Uh, you know, I have a personal website uh, that's my full name, Thomas J J A Y Ord O O R D dot com. Uh, but you can find this book that Christy and I and others co-edited uh, on all the you know major bookselling sites, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And uh, it's in print and ebook, right, Christy? It's an ebook, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. Yep. Christy, where can people uh, find more of what you're up to? So um, I also have a website, drchristysim.com. That was my old last name. Uh there's all sorts of stuff on there, links to articles. Um, I actually don't have this new book on there yet. I have to do that. Um, but I also have written a solo book, Survivor Care, What Religious Professionals Need to Know About Healing Trauma. And that's probably the most significant work that's being used in seminaries and uh, other places to train religious professionals uh, on, on what to expect in the trauma response and um, how to work with healing instead of against yes. it. Yes. Well, listener, stay tuned. We're going to have Christy back on to chat about that. And I'm convinced more than ever, I mean, Ben and I are religious professionals. We get paid to be Christians, unlike everybody who doesn't. Uh, but I think that it's t- it's high time for all of us to learn about our own trauma, become trauma-informed, trauma-sensitive, and trauma-responsive, uh, so that we uh, don't find out that our impact is disproportionate to our intent, that we learn how to live whole and wholesome lives with and for each other. Um, Your book, again, is called Love Does Not Control. Therapists, psychologists, and counselors explore uncontrolling love. Tom and Christy, thanks for spending so much time with us today. You're welcome. Absolutely, you're welcome. Well, Well, that was delightful. Did you learn something? Yeah, I always do. I always do. I always learn something, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of fun to be able to talk uh, talk with people. At least once a week, we're talking with folks and learning stuff, sharing conversations. Yeah. yeah. So it's great. Yeah, I think it's great too. I'm always impressed by um, the way Tom is able to share things succinctly, yeah. but profoundly. Yeah. Like he doesn't yeah. mince words. 
It's true. If there's if there's one thing I know about me, is that I'm a word mincer. <laughs> I take three times mm. as long to say something that uh, doesn't need to be said usually, and if it does, <laughs> it should be right. said in a third of right. the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is great. I do appreciate that. Um, that people are able to do that. I was thinking about how um, you know somebody left a comment. Um, a listener named Jana left a comment on our last um, podcast episode with Laura um, Anderson, where we talked, you know, a little bit about high control faith and, and that kind of a thing. Basically the gist of the comment was that it would be interesting to reflect on how certain kinds of theology itself can be traumatic or can trigger trauma. So it's mm. not just the way you hold the theology, right? It's not just like, Oh, it's good theology, but um, you were a mean person. So you caused trauma. But there's ways, is there a way to reflect on certain kinds of theology that is inherently trauma inducing? Hmm. Right. Um, and I think, I think we sort of kind of talked a little bit about that um, on this episode because I thought it was a, it was a really interesting question to think about like how, <laughs> I mean, you know, just to dive into it, like thinking about eternal conscious torment as a, hmm. as a, as an article of faith, right. That, Unless you say the right prayer, right? Unless, you know, unless you're saved, like what's coming for you is this deep threat, like a pain, torment forever. Mm-hmm. You can't even fathom that. And, you know, I'm, I've heard from a lot of people in our pastoral work and work we do with gravity. I have heard from people that that did deeply, you know, the effect of that in a lot of kids' lives was to feel traumatized by that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I was interested in, you know, like there's, there's a theological component maybe to our healing. We have to come to see God differently if we're going to be healed from our trauma. Yeah. I know that a lot of people grew up with eternal conscious torment as being the only uh, appropriate biblical, faithful, orthodox way of understanding hell. We call hell. Um, But yeah, I agree with you. And I think that, I think that the more theologians look at scripture, uh, the more they go, wait a minute, we've really read like, kind of like the, a, a medieval novel onto the yeah. scriptures, right? Dante's <laughs> Inferno. We've really, yeah. re- we kind of read into this text things that wasn't yes. meant to say. So maybe we'll have to do a series on that. Let us know, listener, if you want to hear us talk about hell. I mean, hell, we'll do it. We we will. We've <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, I mean, this this is the topic historically. Th- things Times change, Matt. But um, so things may not be the way they used to be, but historically the most uh, kind of blowback we get on podcast episodes is talking about hell. Really? Fascinating. Yeah. That is fascinating. We don't get a ton of like complainy emails, you know, mm-hmm. but the ones that we do, people really get, uh, really get up in arms well, when it comes to hell. Reminder so. again, the email for those complaining emails has been at gravity Matt leadership. At gravity leadership. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> no, that was great. I love that interview, and I'm happy we're going to have Christy back, and uh, maybe someday yeah. down the road we'll have Tom back too. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, have them all back. Ben, uh, I know you have a dog. I do. Little and tiny, I have a dog. Little tiny dog. Yeah. You got um, a dog too. Your dog and, is ten times the size of my dog, probably. Yes, and all my dog wants to do is be your dog's friend, and all your dog wants to do is tell everybody that there's a giant predator. Yep. Yep. And, looking and to kill her. her. Yep. <laughs> my, my, yeah, my dog's funny. But yeah. I, I reminded me, I wanted to ask you, Ben, do you know why dinosaurs don't make good pets? Because uh, they're all dead? Yes. Did That's, I get it? You got nice. I <laughs> <laughs> thought I was being a little silly, and then I was like, oh, wait a second. That might be the joke. This That's is, it. They're all this dead. This is the time to be silly. Yeah, I like it. Good job, buddy. I like it. Yeah. Indeed. Dead creatures make terrible pets. <laughs> yeah. Terrible. Yeah. Especially uh especially recently deceased creatures. Yeah, that's stinky. Yeah. yeah. Whereas like a pile of bones, dinosaur bones, it wouldn't be bad. It wouldn't be a, I mean, it wouldn't be a disruptive pet. But it, you know, it's not much of a pet. It's more of an article of furniture. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, this has been fun this uh, series. I think we've got one more in the, we're going to have Christy back to talk about yeah. this series on being trauma informed. Oh, it's good. This little, this little mini series. Yeah. So yeah. stay tuned, right. like, stay like tuned. and subscribe. Listen listeners. up. Listeners. Later. <laughs> See you later. Peace y'all. Bye.
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles that we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our show is produced by Ben Sturkey and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sturkey edits and mixes the podcast. You can check out his work at aaronsturkey.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the Start Recording button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.